Our consideration is uh, taken from William Barclay on the subject of hope. And he says, The Christian is the man of hope because he keeps his eyes fixed on God. Augustine took a wretched man who thought of nothing but his sins. Look away from yourself and look to God. The Godward look is the secret of the Christian hope. And that is ever so true. I always remember Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It reminds us that when we have a perspective that looks for the return of Christ, it will change how we live, and it will be for the better. Okay, our message this morning, uh, and we did manage to get some notes out, and I apologize if those notes are not as exactly as nice as they could be, but uh, nonetheless, I think they'll be helpful to follow along. And so, let's begin with a word of prayer, and we'll get into the message. Father, once again, we are so thankful for the privilege we have of studying your word, for the privilege we have of knowing your word, and of sharing it. We know today, Father, that the teacher is the Holy Spirit, and so may he be the one that imparts the truth. May, may this be something that benefits each and every one of us and encourages us to recognize who it is that our Savior really is, to what he is really like, and how much he's going to do and how much he's able to do even now. We know, Father, that the biggest problem in Christendom is in recognizing who their Savior really is and in selling him short and reducing him to being another, just a good neighbor, a good friend. May we never be guilty of that, Father. Now we'd ask in our Savior's name. Amen. So we entitled this when Jesus said, Verily, verily. Now, in the Gospel of John, it, it's quite unique from the other three Gospels in, some, in many ways. And one of them is, of course, that I, I really like the Gospel as it, as it gives us an outline of what he's going to cover in the first 18 verses. Now, none of the other Gospels does this, but if you look at John 1, 1 through 1, 18, you will see an overview of everything that's going to be essentially covered in the Gospel, culminating with a beautiful statement in, in John 1, 18. And uh, let me read that for you, uh, John 1, 18. This is, this is the final verse, and I think this really, really sets the tone. It says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now, I've mentioned this before, and that's a word that we get the word in English, exegesis from. It means to explain something thoroughly. So John said it, the last thing he said is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, thoroughly explained what deity is like. So nobody has an excuse to not know what God is like because He showed it. And John has recorded a great deal about that. Now, the Gospel of John also is the only Gospel that tells you exactly why he wrote it. In John 20, verses 30 and 31. We're not going to look there, but we have in Sunday school mentioned that. And the Gospel of John also has far more references to the deity of Christ than the other three Gospels put together. That's not to say that Mark, Matthew, and Luke don't have references to his deity. It's just that John, virtually every chapter, has references to the deity of Christ. And by the way, that should tell you what the early church needed and what the church today needs too, by the way. Now, one other thing that you see here is that when you want a verse but a scripture, the most crystal clear expression of, of the deity of Christ, if, if I were asked by someone to say in just a few words, who is Jesus Christ, I would take them to John 1.1. 1, 1. The reason I would is because of how crystal clear it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, deity. Now, you can't say it any simpler than that. And that's the best. If you want a summary verse, if someone ever says to you, well, who's this Jesus you're always talking about? You can recite this verse to him or tell him this verse. This is one of the best places to see he's fully deity. And that's where John begins his gospel. So that should tell you something. Because he's going to say that he's going to thoroughly explain this one in verse 18. But he also starts off by saying that he is God. He faces the Father. He has full equality with God. And that's one of the big problems we see today is an understanding that we're not just, when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about somebody that's another man like we are that has the same weaknesses, that has the same problems we do. A lot of your Christian music portrays it that way. No, no, that is not who this one is. John's gospel starts you off on the right foot. Now, the, the Gospel of John does another thing, too, and I put this in your notes. It provides the only actual record of how long Jesus ministered. If, if by reading the other Gospels, you would not necessarily be able to tell exactly how long Jesus ministered. But in the Gospel of John, 
I put in the references here. You can look them up later. He mentions three distinct Passovers in John 2.23, John 6.4, and John 13.1. And that's so that gives us three years plus a little bit of time. And that's how we know. So you wouldn't really know that for sure without the Gospel of John. You might be able to figure it out in the other Gospels. But John just lays it out so nice and so easy. We should say one more thing that I didn't uh, put in your notes. That in John, the Gospel of John, there's one other thing that's particularly unusual. He will refer to the, the Jews, quote unquote. And when he does that, he's not always talking about the people. Look at John chapter 7 for just a moment. And you should keep this in mind. This will help you immeasurably because when you see the Jews, it makes you think it's all the Jews that are against Jesus. No, there's a particular group of the Jews who are out to get him. And it's not necessarily the people. Okay, so John chapter 7, verse 11. It says, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? Now you notice, the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? Verse 12. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Who are the Jews? In John's gospel, primarily when you see it, he's talking about the religious leaders. Not the common people, it's the religious leaders. Now, if you think about it, as John writes this gospel, he's writing it probably A.D. 90 or later. At that point, the church is primarily Gentile. So by calling these people the Jews, he's lumping together, John lumps together all these religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and all of them, and just calls them one thing, because the Gentiles wouldn't have known those distinctions. People today don't always know those distinctions. Now, there's another theme in John that's, that's very useful, I put in here, and you have a, you have a reference, uh, G649, for the word sent. If you use Esword and you want to see an interesting theme through the Gospel of John, 28 times you'll find this word sent, G649, and it refers over and over again to Jesus. Jesus as the one sent from the Father. Now that adds something to the deity, because if God the Father personally sent him, what does that tell you? There's a closer relationship with God the Father, and it's a lot more formal than people would think. He didn't just come on his own. He was sent by God the Father. That makes it even that much more important. And he kept saying this. You'll notice, he'll, if you go through and check this out, it's a really good study to do. You see how many times he says this, and he shoves it in the face of the, of the Jews. And they don't like it. They don't like it. They won't respond to it. But now... I think the most intriguing themes in the Gospel of John, to me, are the, John's use of the words, I am. Now, uh, I don't want to get technical with you, but in the Greek language, your verbs have the person. If you said the simple word, I me, which is a Greek word, it means I am. But if you put the personal pronoun in front of it, ego. Now, some, many of you people have heard that. I bet a lot of you have heard ego, I me, as you've been at the church here. That's I, I am. It's emphatic. But it's also a title that goes back to Exodus 3.14. Now, I didn't put it in your notes, but you might put it in there Exodus 3.14. Because when Moses saw the burning bush, and he found out it was God in that bush that was burning and wasn't consumed, God sent, told him he was going to send him to the people of Israel. And so Moses said simply, okay, well, who should I say sent me? And the, the God in the bush said, you tell him, I am has sent you. I am. I am because I am. I, I translate that in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. I am essential. So when Jesus is going to say I am, and we go through, he says this many times in this gospel, boy, the fur is going to fly on some of them. Not all of them, because some of them I don't think they caught. And some of them maybe weren't such a strong statement of deity. But boy, there's some of them that were. And they understood when he said that. And that's a remarkable theme. So if you want another theme to study in John, just go in and you could use English and just type I am into a search engine or rather an, an e-sword and you go through and you'll see all the places in John it was said and you can see what happened. You can see how the Jews respond to a simple statement that he claimed to be full deity. Now you know I have a big problem here before we go any further. I'm, I'm not through the introduction yet but I have a big problem here. I have a problem with those who say that Jesus did not claim to be deity. You can't read the Gospel of John and get out of the first chapter without seeing that's who he is. You can't get out of the second chapter or the third chapter. You can't get very far. In the fourth chapter, he, he tells the woman at the well, I am is the one speaking to you. 
Look at John chapter 4 for a moment. I want to correct something that's always bothered me. I'm not a big one. I'm not a lover of getting up in, script, in church and correcting the Bible and saying, well, there's a problem here, there's a problem there. But there's sometimes you just have to do it because there's a problem that is just going to cheat you out of something. In John 4, 26, Jesus answers this woman. The woman says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, now it says, I, I, I that speak to you, I'm he. That, that italicized he doesn't belong there. You know what he said literally? If you look at the Greek text, if you have any letter, I am is the one speaking to you. Now, if that's not a statement of deity, I don't know what is. Because that woman, she went off and left town and she said, I, I found, she says in verse 29, I found a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Yes, she got the message. So, you cannot get very far in the Gospel of John. And those who say that, that, that the Gospel of John is, is not authentic, well, you know what? They can answer to God for that. But all I can tell you is if you read the Gospel of John, there is no doubt of the full equality of Jesus Christ with God the Father. And I'm very frustrated when I hear music, Christian music, or when I hear sermons or hear people talk as though he's something less. He's a good buddy. He's a friend. No, he's not a good buddy and a friend. He is the God that spoke the universe into existence. He is fully equal with the Father. He was sent personally from the Father. And one of the interesting themes also that he has is the theme, verily, verily. So when Jesus said, verily, verily, and that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to go through some of them. And I'm not sure how far we'll get because he does say that 25 times in this gospel. Now, he does say verily 53 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But that's, uh, that's verily once, not twice. Now, so you might say to yourself, okay, so what is the difference between just saying verily and saying verily, verily? What's the big deal? Don't they mean the same thing? And if there's a difference, what is it? Well, I think when you see it, that there's a little bit of, di of difference in the emphasis that is there. Now, what is the meaning of verily, verily? Now, if you use ESORT and you want to look this word up, it's G281. I didn't put it in your notes, but those who use ESORT, if you want to trace it down, G281, you can put it in an ESORT search engine and the King James Plus, and you can look it up, and it'll show you every place. It'll bring up all the uses of this word, and you don't have to know Greek to use ESORT, which is really nice if you don't know Greek or Hebrew. It's the same in the Old Testament. Now, this word, is, it translates a very familiar Hebrew word. Now, I'm, it's interesting. We, English borrows words all the time. But did you know ancient languages did the same thing? Because verily is actually a translation of the Hebrew word, and I put it in here, and you can see the Hebrew, or you can see the Greek word, amen, amen, which is amen, which comes from the Hebrew word. Now, you don't look down there. There's why people get concerned. That second line, you see the Hebrew word? That's pronounced amen. Now, it reads backwards, and that's, what, that's why people have a fear of Hebrew. It just reads backwards, and the letters look funny. But it reads from right to left instead of left to right. So you'd read it from Amen. Now, that Hebrew word comes out of a root that means something that is firm, solid, or sure. And its usage in the Old New Testament came to mean that it's something that is trustworthy and certain. But in the Old Testament, did you know it's translated believe quite a few times? I want to look back for just a moment to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to come back to John, but you want, I want you to see this because uh, this translation here uh, kind of, uh, you, might, you might miss something if you didn't know just a touch of the uh, Hebrew language. Genesis chapter 15, and beginning at, uh, well, let's begin at verse 1 and we'll read down through verse 6. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, or if you please, stop being afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding, exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring, and one, indeed one born of my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants, or the King James, your seed be. 
And he amen the Lord, and he counted to him for righteousness. He believed. No, he amen the Lord. He said, amen. In other words, he said, this is firm, this is solid, this is sure. I believe it, because it's firm and solid and sure. That's what the word means. Amen means something is firm and solid and sure. You can believe it. You can trust in it. Now, that's important, because when you get back into the Gospels, you're going to find that in the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to find verily is used quite a few times. And for example, now I have it printed in your notes, you can see it. When verily, verily it adds emphasis in a statement. Now, I have printed Matthew 5.18 in your notes. It says, Jesus said, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now, a, a jot and a tittle were very small points. They were grammar points, and the, the yacht, one of them was a little tiny letter, the small, one of the smallest letters in Hebrew. Not even the smallest letter or vowel point was going to disappear from the law until it was fulfilled. But now, try reading it without verily and see what it says. For I say unto you, to heaven and earth shall pass, one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till it be fulfilled. Is there a difference between saying, for I say unto you, and for verily I say unto you? Is, you, is there a difference? There is a difference. There is one. It's for truly. It's a fact. It is something that is set. Now, the law wasn't going to go away till it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Christ. But on the bottom of page one, in my thinking, I would say verily serves to emphasize something. In a way, it's like saying, this is a settled fact. Listen up. This is settled. Listen. Listen to me. That's what he's saying. He said, listen to me. The law is not going to go away till it's fulfilled. That's what he's saying. Now, we, we kind of do the same thing in modern English. If we say, now look, listen to me. And then you say something. What, what, when you do that, what are you trying to do? You're trying to tell him, this is the way it's going to be. You listen to me. This is what's going to happen if you do that. Now, if you ever told your children that, you say, you listen to me. If you do that again, <laughs> uh, I, I, I can remember doing that with my children a few times. But uh, my, my daughter, Andrea, is not going to admit to it. She probably heard it as... Oh, a perfect example of the sin nature. But that's what's... <laughs> I, won't, I won't tell you that her father was the same way. But... They hung that last guy was perfect. <laughs> uh, they, yeah, the only... Yeah. But so the bottom of the page, I think it, it, it's... We, like I say, we do that today. We say, now listen to me, or, or listen up. Now, if... Top of page two, on my notes. Now... If one verily, one amen, one amen, one verily means listen up, how about two? What happens if you say amen, amen? Now, you could translate it that way, which would be kind of fun. None of the translations do it. By the way, I have a, I have a note down here that I think it's a footnote here that in your, in your modern English translations, none of them keep verily, verily, which I think is kind of a shame in a way because the New King James says most assuredly, and I... Uh, I don't know. That's somehow just, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm a traditionalist. I kind of like that. Verily, verily, it sounds a little bit more. Now, the, the New American Standard and the English Standard Version, which the English Standard Version is not bad for modern translation, actually. They say, truly, truly. Now, that's probably better. Because you see, truly, truly, you get the impact, you get the impact of saying something twice. Listen, listen. Now, if, you ever, if someone ever said to you, listen, listen. You listen to me. You listen to me. What would you do? You would listen, wouldn't you? You'd get the idea that whatever that person is saying, that's pretty solid. You better not ignore what he's saying. It's a set absolute fact. And that is exactly what I believe it means. Now, and point number two down here, there's an extra word in there I didn't catch. It says, the verily, verily statements were foundational truths which summarize important doctrines. You cross out a pawn. I, I tried to edit for myself and, uh, well... <laughs> Word didn't catch it, and I didn't either, so there's an extra word in there. But these, when, these verily, verily statements, I believe you're going to find in Scripture that these are going to be statements that summarize something that's going to be an important doctrine. It's going to be important, and they're going to be about who this one is. Now, that's why I say the modern church needs to understand. They need to spend time in the book, and this is one of the books they need to spend time in. Because if you go through John and you look at these things, you're going to come away with the conclusion... This is a very important person. This is a very, very important person. We're dealing with. He's not just another man. He is more than just that. Now, 
the foundational truths, and I believe this double amen means something that is completely trustworthy and should not be questioned, cannot be questioned. It's, it's more than just pay attention to this, listen up. It's listen up, this is not going to be changed. This, you don't challenge this, you can't challenge this. Hard to put it in English, but it's a really emphatic way of saying, you better listen to this because this is the way it is, brother. That might be a good way to put it too. So, Jesus does something interesting. Now, I should say John did not write his gospel necessarily in completely chronological order because we're going to see when we get to chapter 3 in a moment that Nicodemus is going to talk about multiple signs, but as you get to the third chapter, John, Jesus has only done one sign. And so you might say, huh? Wait a minute. But don't forget that writers of Scripture and Gospels included did not always do things chronologically. They sometimes would skip back and forth with different subjects. Now, we do that today. I mean, you, you, you can do that. If you've ever watched TV programs, you ever see where there's a flashback? And, you know, nobody has a problem with that. We say, well, yeah, it's the, he's just remembering something. He's going back to it because it has... And so the Scripture, in a sense, it does that. So this is going to be written by theme, and John has arranged this book beautifully. This book is arranged. It's a masterpiece. Because the, you're going to find that these verily verilies... Now, I, I don't have a list of them for you, but you can easily find them if you use, a, if you use any Bible study app. You can find where they're at. They're uniquely placed in groups primarily of three, and occasionally four. They're in groups of three to different individuals. And what is fascinating to me is the first, the first three. Now, there's one given early in John chapter 1. We're not going to deal with that one. But they're given in groups. There's going to be three to the teacher of Israel, the teacher. Then there's going to be three to those who hate him. And then there's going to be four in the sixth chapter, to the common people. And all of them are summarizing something important about who this one is. And so we're going to look at the third and the fifth chapter. We're going to try and get through those. And if we don't get through them, you'll at least have notes. But I want to go to chapter 3 of John first. So John is going to teach the teacher. Now this is a very fascinating, very, very fascinating chapter. And you get to the third chapter. Beginning at verse 1, John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, by ruler, he was somebody in charge of a synagogue, at least. He wasn't a governmental official, per se. This man came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that your teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I should say something real quick there. The word miracle in John, if you've been in Sunday school, I pointed out that the majority of the time in John, the word that is translated signs, is used, the word for signs in the Greek text is usually translated miracles. And that kind of goofs things up because at the 21st chapter, and the 20th chapter, it talks about the signs Jesus did. And you go through looking for, where are they? Well, they're translated miracles. So the, but the New King James picked that up here. So he does say that. No one can do these signs, verse 2, um, that you do unless God is with him. So now we have Nicodemus. We have a fascinating story. Now, the reason that Jesus or the Nicodemus came to Jesus at night is, is there's been all kinds of lessons in Sunday school and, and conjecture about it. But let me say just one thing. I think you can find a reason out of Scripture without going any further. Look back at Mark chapter 2. And I, did I put that in your notes? If I didn't, you can write that in. But in Mark chapter 2, I think you can see a reason. Why would he come at night? People have said, oh, he was embarrassed. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because I believe there's something else in here, and I'll tell you in a moment. But now, let's see. Verse 1 of Mark chapter 2. And he entered, and again he entered Capernaum, and after some days it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately they're gathered together uh, so that there was no, immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowds, they uncovered the roof where he was. Then, so when they had broken through, they let, the, they, the, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Why did Nicodemus come at night? Well, here's your answer. Here's your answer. I don't think he was ashamed. I don't think so at all, because you're going to find out, back in the first chapter, the Jews were sending people out to find out who John the Baptist was, and ultimately they were going to send people out to find out who Jesus was. So he came at night, I believe, for just one simple reason. It's the only time he could get to see the man. You could see Mark too. This is early in his ministry. He was thronged. There were people that wanted to be healed. You couldn't get anywhere near the man. When do you get near him? Come at night. So I think that's the answer. 
Now, if you look back at John chapter 1, and I allude, alluded to it for a moment, if you look back at nine, verses 19, 20, and 21, you can see that it was a custom that the, the, the Jewish leadership, the Jews, the religious leaders, they were trying to run the roost. They were running the show. Uh, there's a verse in John chapter 11 that shows you how they thought. They were concerned about their, their status over, even over the benefit of the whole nation. But if you look at John chapter 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist, not John the writer. When Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Then they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the, are you the prophet? That's Deuteronomy 18. And he answered, No. And so then he goes on to tell him who he is. But So you can see that the Jewish leadership was sending out people to find out who John the Baptist was. Now let me suggest to you then that what happens here is that they sent the teacher. Now in John chapter 3, verse 10, there's something that you should see. And, and there's a word missing that uh, the New King James puts in, but the Old King James misses. There's a definite article and the New King James has it right. Jesus answered and said unto him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? He was the teacher of Israel. Now, the word for master, uh, you, you will run into some people who are King James only people and they will protest the fact that master in many places has changed to teacher. But you know there's a good reason for that. To this day, the Brits would call a teacher a master. There's a headmaster of such and such a school. What is he? He's the head teacher. So they'll call a teacher a master. And so the New King James takes the place where the word for teacher is translated master and makes it teacher. But some of your people that like the King James say, you're denying the deity of Christ. He's no longer the master. It was never the master. He was the teacher. This man, so, and you can see it here. He says, are you the master of Israel? You know, he's the teacher of Israel. Now, what does that mean? If you just call somebody the teacher, what does it mean? He's the best. Now let me suggest to you, the reason this man came at night, number one, was that's the time he could see Jesus. And number two, he came not necessarily on his own, though he could have. I think he was sent to find out who this one was. And because he was the teacher of Israel, nobody was going to pull the wool over his eyes. See, they sent their best, I believe they sent their best man out. Now I could be wrong about this, but I, I believe that, that he came at night and he was sent from the Jewish leadership to find, well, who is this guy? They couldn't get near him in the daytime to ask him. There were too many people, so they sent him at night. So I think he came for that reason. Now, I will say something else, too. I think when you look at John the Baptist, or not John the Baptist, Nicodemus, uh, don't feel bad, Courtney. We all, we all make statements where we get the wrong person in there. I know Courtney was doing that in Sunday school, and we had to pick on him about it, but it's just a common practice. Except I don't have chapter 26 when there's only, you know. <laughs> I haven't done that one yet. But so, when you look at John chapter 3, you notice what he says in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, or teacher. That's the Hebrew word for teacher, Rabbi. Out of, it comes out of Hebrew, rather. My, rabbi, my teacher. We know that you are a teacher, a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. So what does he do? Well, he, this is an honest statement. This is, he's, he's not flattering him. He's just, saying, he's just saying something honest. He says, we know. Now, you'll notice I put your notes. This is not the word to know by experience. We know intellectually. In other words, they could look at it and say logically, hey, wait a minute. Look what this guy's doing. If he's doing this, he's got to be more than just a man. And so he's being honest. This is an honest assessment of a man who is not antagonistic to Jesus Christ. And so he says, he goes on to say, we are, we know, we know, by, we know intellectually that you are a teacher having come. And it's, it's a, in the, in the Greek text, it's something, it means something that happened in the past and is still going on. So we know you are a teacher that having come from God. You have come from God and you're still here with us. So you've been here for a while and we know you have come from God. Now, does that sound like, a, sound like he's being a, a negative, nasty person, questioning him? No, in fact, if you look over to John chapter 7, I can show you something else about him. In John chapter 7, whenever the leadership of the, of the Jews were turning on this man, John, uh, Nicodemus was not one of them. If you look at what he says in verse uh, 
Well, let's look at verse 45. John chapter 7, 8, John chapter 7, verse 45. It says, Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Now, they were sent to arrest him. And the officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered him and said, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Oh, nice people. These, these Jews, they were supposed to be teaching the law. And they said these people don't know the law. I wonder if they realized that they were indicting themselves. I don't think they were smart enough to figure out that they just said, we have failed our, they don't know the law. Well, it's our fault. It is their fault. But notice what, it goes, what goes on after this. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said unto them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? Then they answered and said unto him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has written out of Galilee. Well, nice guys, aren't they? But you'll notice he says, does our, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? Now, it sounds like at this point, at this point, Nicodemus is still open-minded about it. He said, does the law judge him? He's not judging. They, the Jews want to get rid of him already. There's no question. In the fifth chapter, they've already made up their mind they're going to kill him. So by the seventh chapter, they're definitely looking for any reason they can find. But here's Nicodemus saying, no, wait a minute, does the law judge before it sees? So when you get back to the third chapter, you can say this man did not come hostile. He was not a hostile witness. So it may also be that he came on his own because he doesn't seem to represent what the Jews are thinking. But then again, since he was the teacher of Israel, I kind of think they probably sent him because he would be the one that would know. They weren't, Jesus was not going to pull any wool over this man's eyes. No, he wasn't going to. Now, there may have been a little element of pride there too in this man. I don't know. But if there was... As Pastor said, he was little Nicky when Jesus got done with him. Big Nicodemus became little Nicky when he got done with him because he left, he left confused. So, now what is fascinating to me is Nicodemus makes a statement. Now, does he actually answer a question? Look at verse 2. Does he ask, actually ask Jesus a question? He really doesn't, does he? He just says, you are a teacher. Come from God. We know that. What does Jesus do? He immediately answers something. Now, I don't know, but I've wondered, I have wondered if he was reading this man's mind and he did said this to just flat out flabbergast him, or if he was doing something else, which I think is introduced by this is an absolute settled fact. Now you have a man that is teaching the teacher of Israel. Now if he's teaching the teacher of Israel something that this man doesn't know, because if you look what he's look at what happens in verse four. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when, he, when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he's not going to understand what Jesus said. So Jesus is going to lay something on him, a fundamental, essential, absolute, set fact truth. No one can challenge this. And this man doesn't know it. Now, before we go into what it is, think of one thing. If, as some like to say, there's a whole area of Christian theology that wants to say that the Old Testament and the New Testament are essentially the same thing, that the Old Testament believer had the same salvation we did, they had all the same benefits. If that would be true, then why would Nicodemus say, how can a man be born when he's old? He would know all about this, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he have known it? If he's the teacher of Israel, wouldn't he have known about this? I think so. That's why he was there. He was there because he was the teacher. But if he doesn't know about it, then how in the world can anybody say the Old Testament and the New Testament salvation are the same thing? If you, want to, if you want to really hit somebody upside the head, take them back to Numbers 11 and look at what Moses said. Moses said he, he wished that all, of, all the Jews were God's people and that, that God would put his spirit upon them all. Not in them all, upon them all. Numbers 11, you go back and look at it. If you want to show somebody and say, okay, they had the same thing we do, look at Numbers 11. Why would Moses be wishing God would just put his spirit upon all the people? Well, wait a minute, is the Holy Spirit upon any of us today? No, the Holy Spirit indwells us today. He's not upon us, he's in us. Now, that's quite different. So, do you see the difference? How can anybody say the Old Testament and the New Testament salvation are the same thing? They're not. They're completely different. Oh, you mean God can do something different? Well, I have news for you. He is God, after all. And it is his prerogative to make a plan and to do something different for one group than another. 
God is not obligated. He's not mechanical. He can't be programmed to do just one thing. God, when they, with the three persons that God had, when they made up the decree, they made up a plan. And in their plan, the Jews' salvation and the Gentiles and the Christian, ours is different than theirs. That was the way it was planned. Now, what did he say to this man? Well, this is an absolute ironclad truth. Verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you cannot see. It's very explicit. You cannot. That word for can is the word we get, it's the word that we get dynamite from. Dunamis, people think of it as dynamite. No one has the inherent ability, is what he said. No one has the inherent ability to see and that word for see is a very, very, very important word because it's a word that means that you perceive what you're looking at. You look at something and you begin to understand what you're seeing. In fact, it is translated in that fashion sometimes in its use. And I do have a footnote down here. You can, you can see how it is used. But you can look, you can see with understanding. So what is he saying? No one, no one has the ability on their own to even to see with understanding what the kingdom of God is like. Well, now, you might think, well, that's, that doesn't make sense. Well, how about what it says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? To understand anything about the Christian life, anything about the church, anything about our faith, you have to have some, some illumination from the Holy Spirit. What does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14? It says, but the natural man... That's the, or soulish, if you please. It's the word for soul. The natural man does not receive the things of God, for they are what? Foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, if he can't know them, do you think he could even see without, you think he'd even recognize them when he sees them? I don't think so. Look over at Romans chapter 8. There's another verse. That this this. Now, it doesn't say see, but when you look at it and think about what it's saying, it makes perfect sense to say, no, they're not going to see it because they're not looking for it. They're not looking for it. By the way, if they do see love, they probably think you're a sucker. Because unconditional love, if the world can just take, they'll just take. They'll just keep taking. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. And this, this tells you an awful lot about the way unsafe people think. It says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. The word for set their minds, it's a word that looks at setting their mind. It's, it's the setting the priority of the mind. It's a word that means you determine the value of things. It's a particularly important word. It's they put their value. Let's, let's put it that way. Paraphrase it. For those who live according to the flesh, put their, set their value on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to, to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, the mind that belongs to the flesh, is enmity against God, for it is neither subject to the law of God, neither nor indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And I'd add a little bit more to that. They don't have any desire to please him. They don't want to please him. Now, do you think they could see anything about the kingdom of God? They don't even see any value in it. The whole business is foolishness. I, I had a real lesson in that one time when, when I was talking to a young man, and this was back when I was in Bible college, and I wanted to give him the gospel. And he said, oh, you're a Christian. You're one of those people. So he took out a line. He just said, he drew this line. He said, okay, you have the Old Testament up here. Then you have Jesus coming, and you have, you have the work of the cross, and you have... You have the church, then you have Jesus coming for the church, and you have tribulation, you have the, seven, the thousand year kingdom out here, and so forth and so on. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, huh? He, he knows all that stuff? Well, intellectually does. He says, but I don't believe a bit of it. He says, it's all a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> that, that was an eye-opener to me because it shows you they don't welcome it. They don't, they don't receive it. They don't make it part of their own. They can be aware of it. And there are people, uh, there was a website I went to, it was, uh, was called Unemployed Philosophers Guild or something on the internet. And they had all of these different humorous things. And I got this one package somebody gave me. It was called After the Rapture Mints, for those of us who aren't going anywhere. So the unsaved know what we believe to a point, but they don't welcome it. I should bring it to church sometime. It's called After the Rapture Mints. It has a picture of people going up. It has a guy smoking a cigarette, looking at him as they're going. And it says, for those of us who aren't going anywhere... So they do know, but do you think they believe it or welcome it? So do you think they can see it when it happens? No. 
that's why that's why you can have a testimony because they can't understand but they can see you're doing something different that's why we have a testimony they can come to you and say why do you act that way you're not you're not doing the same thing you're not getting upset at your job brother scott was sharing this morning about that he doesn't get upset with his job he keeps doing it and he works with someone that doesn't who is upset with a job what's the difference scott's got a testimony the other guy he says he was a believer apparently he's got a testimony all right <laughs> that he's not a believer whatever he's got isn't much so they can see it they can't see it they can't recognize it they don't have the ability to look at it and say what it really is because they don't understand the fruit of the spirit if you the story of the church in, in Hillsboro really illustrates that well there was a church Sunrise Baptist Church, I believe it was, was known at, at that time, and they bought this big school building. And they had a pretty good sized church. It was growing, getting bigger. And so they decided that they were going to be like a social gospel. They were going to show their love to the world. So they brought in all these people, and they were taking all these people off the street and everything else. Well, after a couple of weeks, and this is a true story, they had a problem. Their drain was backed up, and they couldn't get it open up. So they had to call in a professional plumber, and it took them a while. You know what they found in the drain? drug paraphernalia, needles all over the place, all kinds of drug paraphernalia. Those people saw love. How did they see love? They didn't see love. They saw suckers. And that's the way, that if, if we show love to the world, they're going to see us as a bunch of suckers, do-gooders. They're not going to understand it. They're still going to think that somehow we're doing this because we have a motive. Maybe we're trying to work our way to heaven. Something like that. But they won't understand it. So this is a fundamental truth. Aside from the new birth... He says, unless one is born again or born from above. Now, there's a lot more involved in this. This is a spiritual birth. This is what happens in salvation. But until a person gets saved, they aren't going to be able to even see it. They don't have the inherent ability to look and see what's right in front of them. You can have an unsaved person come into the church. And after the church, you can see us fellowshipping together and talking and showing uh, fondness for each other, love for each other. And they're not going to recognize what they're seeing. They're just going to say, oh, these people like each other. They're not going to understand it. They would never understand it. Now, he's going to, so Nicodemus doesn't get it because that's why he says, how can a man be born when he's old? He's thinking strictly physical. He's not thinking about a spiritual birth. He's thinking about a physical birth. So that tells you he has no idea. And, the old t- and he's the teacher of Israel. He doesn't know anything about this. And so now Jesus hits him with another fundamental truth. You can't see it. You can't see the kingdom of God. And you cannot enter it without the new birth. Jesus answered, verse 5, Verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you, this is a fact, you cannot challenge or dispute. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is something that can be entered. Now, they don't know what it is, they can't see it. But unless one is born, now, the phrase of water and of the spirit, I, I would translate that a little bit differently because of the grammar. It's of water, even the spirit. And that's a ministry that's described, if you look over Titus chapter 3, verse 5, I think you see the description of what this means. In Titus chapter 3, 5, you have, I believe, a commentary on this, where Paul is telling exactly what is involved in this. So Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Well, let's read verse 4. But when the kindness and love of, of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of, or if you please, from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does the work of applying salvation. It's the washing of regeneration. It's from. Now, when you see the word of, a lot of times it can be translated from. It's just... The easiest translation for the translators is just say of. It just looks like it means of, and it's the form of the language that it could be of, but it also could mean, and does in this case, mean from. So the Holy Spirit does the work. Now, here the teacher of Israel still does not know what he's being told. But now this is, an, this is a truth that cannot be questioned. This is an absolute set truth. Now, he's going to go on from this point. And Nicodemus, his head is probably spinning because Jesus goes on to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said unto you, you must be born again. 
So now, by now, Nicodemus is little Nicky, as Pastor said. I think that was, I like the way you put that. He said, little, Big Nick became little Nicky after this. He's lost. Because you find out, as you look down further, in verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? He just, he's just, that's it. He's not going to speak. He doesn't understand it because Jesus goes on to say the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone that's born of the Spirit. You can't see it. It's not something that the human eye can see unaided. Can't see it. Don't know anything about it. And that's when, of course, Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? You don't know these things? You're the teacher? You don't know these things? Now, I don't think that what Jesus was doing was trying necessarily to help this person as much as he was trying to show him who he really was. If this man indeed was sent, as I believe he was sent, by the, by the Jewish leadership to find out who he was, he was going to go back with his head exploding. It was going to explode. All he could say was that this, this person was talking about things I've never heard. He's, doing, he's talking, he's got signs and miracles, he's got signs to back up who he is, and he's saying these things. I haven't got a clue what he says. So these, these, these truths that are given here are given not so much to help this man as they are to just plain overwhelm him, to send a message back through the teacher. If he overwhelmed the teacher, he did something. Now, we shouldn't, we shouldn't skip verse 11. He had another one in here. And this, this statement is another one that is very powerful. Verse 11. I say unto you, verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, he stop, stop there for a moment. What is Jesus saying? He said, he's saying it's an absolute incontrovertible fact that I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. Now, who, how could you make a claim like that unless you were somebody that was pretty, pretty, pretty powerful? Unless you were deity. Yeah, deity. Because he's going to go on and say, look what he says in verse 13. No one has ascended up to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, I know if you have a, a, a study Bible, you'll find that there's critical text leaves out, omits that statement, who is in heaven, because they didn't understand it. And so they just took it out. Believe it or not, people that copied the Greek New Testament, it was passed on, frequently edited because there were things they didn't understand or they didn't like. So somebody didn't understand this and they thought it sounded strange, so they just dumped that phrase off. But it belongs in the text. The vast majority of the manuscripts have who is in heaven. Now, wait a minute. He said, I, I, I'm telling you things. I'm testifying of what I've known and what I've seen. That's an editorial we. We speak. That's editorial we. In other words, I speak of things that I've seen and I know. And he said, no one's ascended to heaven except the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, wait a minute. Isn't he down here on earth speaking to Nicodemus? Yeah, he is. Well, then how can he be in heaven at the same time? There's only one way he can be in heaven. He's got to be God. He's got to be God. Because the essence of God goes beyond the universe, and God is everywhere present in his essence. Jesus could be on earth, but he could also be in heaven because he's everywhere present. So you, can you understand why Nicodemus is... is his head exploded? Yeah. I mean, if, if, he hadn't, if it had been by now... Now, we don't read again after verse 9 what happened to Nicodemus, but I think it's because his head probably did explode by this point. And, and, he, and of course, you're going to go on and have a classic some classic statements made. But he said, no one... So, he says that, but, he, but the thing that you want to come back to, back in verse 11, it says, you do not receive our witness. Now, the King James has ye... And it's a second person plural. Now, so you have to stop and consider, who's he talking about? You, you plural don't receive our witness. Is he talking to Nicodemus? I don't think so, because in the seventh chapter, we see Nicodemus is still favorable toward him. In fact, if you look at the, I put a reference in here, and you can go and you can look at the 19th chapter, Nicodemus brought some very expensive spices for the burial of Jesus. Does that sound like something you do if you hated the guy? Oh, I hated this guy. Let's give him a good send-off. That doesn't work. 
So Nicodemus, so he's not talking to Nicodemus, and that's why I say when you look at this, I think that Nicodemus came on behalf of all of them, and he's saying, you don't receive our witness. He's not talking about Nicodemus. He knows Nicodemus is going back to the council, and he's saying, you guys don't receive our witness. You back there, not you, Nicodemus. You tell them you don't. You don't receive our witness. Pretty powerful words, but it was true, because we're going to find out very shortly in the fifth chapter, they already had decided to kill him. Now, remember, when you look at John chapter 3, I'm not sure exactly where it fits in the overall chronology of the book because it said, you are doing, verse 2, it says, you are doing signs, plural. But in, the, but in the second chapter, you have a sign, but that's all, you have just one sign. So the third chapter is not chronologically after the second chapter necessarily. And that's not a problem because, like I said, we do that when we write things. We have different subjects. You have one subject. Now there's another subject. Well, that puts back, you go back to that subject, which is before this time. But it's not a problem because we know you're dealing with a subject. So he's talking about his relationship to the kingdom and what he's going to do. But now he's going to go back and talk about something else. So I believe that Nicodemus is, you know, is going back. And I think it's because it's very likely or very possible that when you get to the fifth chapter, we have to, we're not going to be able to go through this all, but I want to at least start looking at the fifth chapter and uh, looking at this. Now, this is where, really, you want a real, real firestorm. This is going to light up the works for the Pharisees. They're, they're, going, to be, they're going to be breathing fire because he's going to give them three lessons Three absolute incontrovertible, fact, incontrovertible facts that they're going to hate every one of them. And you can see them. You can see them right here. The first one is that Jesus can do anything the Father can do. And the second one is that he is the focal point toward the bottom of page four, when we'll deal with it as much as we can. And the last one is on page five, is that he is the final judge of all mankind. These are summary statements. If you want to summarize what Jesus Christ is going to do in the future in his relationship, you have it. Just look under the verily verilies in the Gospel of John and you will see statements that summarize what he's going to do. He doesn't give you all the detail, but he's giving this, of all people, now think about it for a moment. He's giving this to the Jews because if you look at our context, you have Jesus talking to them in John chapter 5. And you'll notice, well, uh, let's see. Let's go back to verse 10. I don't like to do a lot of back, but we have to go back a little bit. This was the man that, was at the, that had been 38 years at the pool of Bethesda that Jesus had taken up your bed and walk. The Jews, notice what it is, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it's a Sabbath, it's not lawful to carry your bed, baloney. The prohibition against work on the Sabbath was the work you did for a living. It wasn't that you couldn't go and do something else. So they're just, but they made up their own rules. And he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see that you, see that you, have, uh, see you have been made well, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. And the man thanked Jesus profoundly. Is that what it says in verse 15? This is one of, the, one of the most ironic things. The man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. Now notice what it says. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath. Now, in John 5, you have a second sign. You have one sign in John 2. You have one sign in John 5. So it is entirely possible that Nicodemus coming to him is actually right after this event. Very possible, because this would be a second sign, so then you could have signs. When Jesus said, or when Nicodemus said, you're doing signs, you have one in the second chapter, one in the fifth chapter, then you have Nicodemus coming. Nicodemus has an open mind. But what about these people? It says, verse 16, for this reason the Jews sought, persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Now, that persecute, there's a nicety of the, of the grammar that you could translate this. They began to pers persecute Jesus, and they were seeking to kill him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath. They began to persecute him. Why? Because he didn't keep their tradition. 
Gee, he didn't go along with what they wanted to do, so they were going to kill the man. Isn't that nice? It sounds like politics today, doesn't it? I won't say any more than that, but it does sound like politics. You, do, you don't go along with the, with, the, with the swamp as it is in Washington. They want to kill you. They will do it. No politics today, folks. <laughs> no politics. So, Jesus begins the exchange with these individuals. Now, you notice verse 16, they already have determined they've sought to kill him. Oh, boy. Now what is he going to say? But Jesus said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said God was his father. What? Making himself equal with God. Boy, I'll tell you what. Anybody that has a problem reading John, here's another place you could show one single verse to show if John 1 1 is not good enough, bring him over to John 5.18 and say, the Jews recognized who he was. He was making himself equal with God the Father. And they didn't like it. They already hate him and want to kill him. He's not playing their game. But now he's just throwing, he's throwing coals on the fire. Ah, but it's not going to stop there. It's going to get worse. Now he's going to give them three basic principles that are incontrovertible facts that they're really going to not like at all. Because they don't want him being with God. They don't want him breaking the Sabbath. They want him to play their game by their rules. And he's not going to do it. So the first fundamental lesson, verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, amen, amen. It's a fact you can't argue with. I say this, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he, that's the father, does, the son also does in like manner. Now, there's a little bit of confusion when you look at this. The son can do nothing of himself. Well, does that mean he's not? Oh, that sounds contradictory. But it isn't contradictory. The son did not initiate things. But he could duplicate whatever the father did. And that's exactly what he says. And it wouldn't make sense to take it any other way. The son can do nothing from himself. In other words, he doesn't start. It isn't his initiative. But anything the father does, he says, I can do it the way the father can. Now, what do you have to say to that, folks? Can anybody question that he's deity? This is an incontrovertible fact. He says, I can do anything the Father can do. And he's going to go on and give you some examples of it. He says in verse 20, The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he does, and he will show him greater works than these, as you may marvel. For, as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son of Man gives life to whom he will. And he's going to do that in John chapter 11. And you notice who he will. For the Father has judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all, that, they, that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. How much stronger can you get? This one is full deed. He can do anything the Father does. And he can do it the way the Father does it. So there's no mistake. There's no question. It's an incontrovertible fact. This is full deity. If he can do whatever the Father does, the way the Father does it, there's no problem. Now, the idea of him not doing things on his own, we should mention that. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, for the sake of time, we'll just look. you can look at the other one, but Hebrews chapter 10 just tells you very simply, why didn't Jesus initiate things on his own? Well, there's a good reason for it, and he's, Paul's going to tell you in Hebrews. Now, Courtney, I did say Paul in Hebrews. So. That's for my brother back there. But in Hebrews chapter 10, and let's begin reading uh, at verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, you know who's saying that. And burnt offerings and sacrifices you have no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifices and burnt offerings, and for, for sin you had no pleasure, nor, had pleasure uh, nor did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. And he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, he may establish the second. So why did, why did Jesus not do things on his own? He says in here twice, I've come to do your will. 
Whatever the father told him to do, he was going to do. But he said that whatever the father did, he had the ability to do exactly what the father did, exactly the way the father did it. Now, I don't know how the world will take that. But I can tell you, he is full, absolute deity. There is not one thing less about Jesus Christ than there was about God the Father. That man that walked on this planet Earth could have done anything God the Father did. And he did raise, in John chapter 11, when he said, Lazarus, come forth, many have said this, and I would agree with it. If he hadn't said Lazarus, and if he just said come forth, there would have been a whole lot more people coming out of the graves. (laughs) So he picked just one, Lazarus, come forth. And somebody had been dead four days and started to putrefy, came out, and he didn't smell bad. He didn't even need to use right guard. <laughs> I mean, he maybe used some other. <laughs> but you get the point. You get the point. Now, so when he says that he can do whatever the Father does, he's, he goes on and, and he goes on and says what, what it is. He, he's, he's going to do greater works. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to judge. And he demands honor. And I, I think that last one there might have hit them really hard. That all should honor the Son like they honor the Father. See, these, these religious leaders here, they claim to be honoring God the Father. Did you, want to honor God? you want to honor God the Father, he said? You've got to honor the one he sent. You notice that, that theme comes in here? Verse 23, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's sent, once again, that's important in many places because the Father personally sent him. He didn't come on his own. The Father personally sent him. And therefore, that makes it even more important. Now, you've, you've got quite a... I mean, he can do anything your Father can do. Now, verse 24, we're going to run out of time, but I just want to hurriedly touch on these last two. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He who hears my word and believes in him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Now, what is he saying there? Well, in essence... He's saying he is the, now the focal point of all God's dealings with humanity. Because it said, it's, he says here, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, there, there it is again, by the way, you see sent me? Believes in him who sent me. He's rubbing their face in it. He really is here. God the Father sent him. They didn't like to hear that, but he's hitting them with it. and they, You can understand why they didn't like him. He was not letting them off. So, but you'll notice, if they don't believe in the one who sent him, it says they pass from death, pass from death to life. So, if you don't accept this one, you're going to have death. Now, it's not talking about physical death. You look in the book of Revelation, in the 20th chapter, there's something called the second death. Death in the here and now is not the end of the line, because we go to heaven. And there's going to be resurrection, according to many verses of scripture. But the second death in Revelation chapter 20, there's no resurrection from that. It's permanent. So it's passed from death unto life. When I got saved, I passed from death to life. Now, I wasn't dying. I was only 15 years old, almost 15. I didn't, but I passed from spiritual death to spiritual life because I was in a place where if I died physically, I'd have the first death, and as an unsaved person, when I, I would come to Revelation 20 and I would face the second death. But I passed from death to life. Now, in essence, when you look at this, we could say many things here, but if you remember what, what did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I'll bet a lot of you can quote that. John 14, verse 6, what did Jesus say to his disciples when they, they were concerned about where he was going and what he was doing? Verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? What did Jesus say to him? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he's saying back here. The fundamental truth. Nobody, nobody can come to God except through Christ. He is the focal point of God's dealings with mankind. Anybody that wants to say they're a believer and has a problem with Jesus Christ has a problem with being a believer in my sight. I don't know how you can be a believer and not accept the full deity of Jesus Christ. He is the focal point of God's dealings with humanity. And you can see, now we don't, we're not going to go there, but you can, 1 John 5, 11, and 12 tells you that we have eternal life because God the Son indwells us. So what can we say about this? This is an absolute, fundamental, incontrovertible truth 
that Jesus Christ is the focal point of God's dealings with humanity. And I don't care whether they want to take in God we trust off our money. I don't care if they take the Ten Commandments off of the Supreme Court building. It's not going to change the fact that everybody is going to answer to this one. He is the focal point of God's dealings. And finally, for just a moment, on the top of page five, the third fundamental lesson for his enemies is that he is the final judge of all humanity. Now, you could write next to this, and I didn't do it. You could write Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. If you, if you want notes there, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 will detail exactly what's going to happen. It's not a pretty sight, but it's the truth. So, you'll notice what he says in John, back in John chapter 5. Verse 20, verse 25. Amen, amen. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the, the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has given, given life and has life in himself, so has he granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. When all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Who is the final judge? Now, it's an interesting statement in here when he talks about the Father has given him authority to have life in himself. We remember that Jesus claimed to be the I Am, which is the God, the eternal God. And in the humanity of Christ, he had life in himself. He had that authority to give his life on the cross. He went to the cross and he voluntarily died. It was his decision to do that. So he had life in himself. He had that authority. But he also, verse 27, had authority to execute judgment. Verse 27 and verse 29, 28 and 29, he's going to resurrect everybody and he's going to be the final judge. Now, that's a fundamental, incontrovertible fact. And it summarizes everything. You've got three powerful summary statements of all things given to his enemies. But that tells me something about this Lord and Savior of mine. He's not somebody to be trifled with. He's someone to be held in respect and awe. And I mean awe in the traditional sense of standing back and being amazed. Because this one who said these things also is the same one that went to the cross and took your place and mine and shed his blood to pay for your sins. He rose from dead to prove it was done. And he only wants one thing out of us. He wants us to believe that. But this is what he's like. Because if people do not come to him today and believe, that last fundamental truth is the one that's going to hit them between the running lights. He is the final judge. He's the one they have to answer to. He's the focal point of God's dealings. And, you're not going to get, and nobody's going to get around that fact. Nobody. I'm thankful today that we don't have to worry about that. And I hope that you realize that when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the absolute master, because these are things that are true of him. And if you want a real blessing, go through and look at the rest of the amen, amen statements, because you'll see there's a lot more things. There's a whole, there's actually four in the sixth chapter where he's going to talk to the common people about himself and about them. And there's some important things said there too. But these, these amen, amen statements I want you to think of them today as those are absolute incontrovertible facts. Listen up, pay attention, this is the way it is. And they summarize things about what your Lord is like. And he's far greater than most of us can even begin to comprehend. But I'm sure thankful that he's my Savior and that he's not going to be my judge. I hope you are too.